Well, good morning. It is a joy to see you guys this morning. If you have your Bibles, open to Song of Solomon chapter 4. It's where we're going to be this morning as we continue in on our series on dating, relationships, marriage, and the whatnot. All right. We'll kind of be keying in on the whatnot this morning, meaning sex. All right. So that's where we're going to be this morning. I will tell you guys, as you guys are turning there... uh, I've never really taught a passage like this this morning, all right? Uh, As we get into Song of Solomon chapter 4, we're going to see this couple on their wedding night, and this is the most vivid and the most graphic our Bible will ever get, all right? So, buckle up. And if this is your first time visiting Grace College, (laughs) welcome probably, I don't know if that's the right word for the morning, all right? But uh, you may notice on our, our tables we have green howdy cards. If this is your first time, we'd love to know that you're visiting. The table host, the family that's at your table would love to be able to follow up with you. We'll talk to you more about that later this morning, but we're just ecstatic that you guys are here. Song of Solomon chapter 4, as you guys are turning there, I'll tell you guys, I was noticing this week on uh, iTunes that number two, the number two rated TV show is a certain show. I'm curious if you guys can guess. Number two on iTunes, number one on Amazon. What is one of the top ranked TV shows right now for purchase? Anyone know? It fits also that this is Halloween week, all right? Uh, the Walking Dead, all right? I don't know if any of you guys are fans, all right? But uh, it was absolutely dominating iTunes and absolutely dominating Amazon, all right? And I think it's not just that it's just Halloween week, all right? It's not just that it's been a month of Ebola fears, right? Uh, but there is kind of an obsession with this whole zombie thing, all right? And it is kind of going everywhere, all right? Nothing seems to be out of the reach of the zombie movement as kind of, I'm kind of starting to see it, all right? And so I don't know if any of you guys went as zombies this uh, Friday night. I don't know if any of you guys dressed up or if you kind of zombified some kind of normal, innocent outfit, all right? Uh, But I was noticing this week that even Disney characters have become moved and uh, captured by the zombie movement. Not even Disney is safe, all right? There's an actual artist who took a series of Disney characters, and I want you guys to see these. I think it fits perfect for Disney or for Halloween, but took a series of Disney characters, these cute, innocent, precious kid movie characters, all right, and recast them, all right, by costume and by look as if they were zombie hunters. So here you go. Here's a couple of them. For example, here's uh, the girl from Brave, all right? Uh, And then here's Rapunzel and Flynn, all right? As if these guys were zombie hunters, all right? Kind of a different look for them, all right? Kind of more of an adult look, all right? Maybe kind of a little darker, all right? But here's a couple more for you guys. Any guys fans of Toy Story? Woody, Buzz, and Jesse, all right? Again, kind of a different look for them, all right? And then Mulan, all right? So uh, I, I was laughing at these because obviously for us as a young family with two kids, we are like as enamored with the whole Disney thing. I mean, it's just kind of running constantly in our home, all right? Uh, I know all the Disney characters. I know them in and out. I know what they say. I know what they wear. And so seeing some of these characters kind of redone made me laugh, all right? Because they've taken these innocent Disney characters that were great and good as they were and in a sense kind of made them more adult, right? Uh, kind of darkened them up, kind of gave them a new picture, a new look, and kind of twisted them a little bit. And really kind of as we jump into a morning on sex, I really think in many ways as we look at this topic of sex, kind of going from zombies to sex might be a little bit of a a stretch, all right, maybe. Uh, But I want to submit to you guys really as we talk about the topic of sex, something that God has created, something that is good, and yet I'm going to argue to you guys that our culture really has taken that which was good, that which was innocent and good as God created it, and in a sense maybe made it more adult or twisted it a bit and recast it in a way that no longer it looks like it once looked, and no longer does it have an impact in our lives like it once was supposed to have an impact. So that's where we're going to go this morning. And really, as we kind of look at this topic of sex, what we're going to see is this couple who's been moving from attraction to dating, through dating to engagement. And now lastly, this not lastly, but at least this morning, we're going to see them uh, in their wedding and now in their wedding night, all right? Their honeymoon, if you will. And so we're going to see them kind of as they've continued to move. And so we're going to see them experience sex for the first time this morning, all right? 
and a passage that's going to be incredibly vivid and incredibly detailed. I'll tell you guys, I'm thankful that the weather has cooled off uh, because by the time we get done with this passage, it's going to get a little hot up in here, all right? You guys are going to need to get outside and cool off a little bit, all right? That's kind of where we're going this morning. And I say that to say this too, because here's the reality. As we look at a topic like this, for many of us, the church has been absolutely silent on the topic of sex by and large, all right? If you guys were in main service, you actually heard Blake address the topic of sex. At least as sex has been twisted. We're going to see this morning in our patches, sex as God intended it. And a beautiful and perfect portrait and picture of what God ultimately intended in its goodness. All right. That's what we're going to see. But for many of us, not only has, our, has the church sometimes been silent on the topic, but for many of us, our culture has so bombarded us on this issue that for so many of us, as we come to a topic like this this morning, as we look at a couple who they are going to arrive on their wedding night as virgins. For so many of us, as we jump into a story and a passage like this, for many of us, we go, man, if that's kind of what we're shooting for, man, that's, that's, I've already missed that boat. Uh, whether it's the choices I made in high school, whether it's choices I made in college, or maybe it was choices that were made to me that I didn't even have an act or a choice in. For so many of us, we kind of jump into a story and a passage like this this morning, and maybe some, for us, some of us, our first instinct is, man, it's too late for me. <laughs> Man, it's too late. Man, this ship has sailed for me. And so what do I do and where do I go? What I want to say is no matter how far you've gone this morning on this topic of sex, no matter what you've experienced and where you've been and who you've been with, for every single one of us, our culture is so twisted this thing for us that every single one of us needs to have our view of sex and our approach to sex rebuilt. That for many of us, we really need to, in a sense, begin to move back towards and move back towards what God intended this to be. It doesn't matter what kind of failures or victories you've had in this area. Every single one of us is in need of a savior. Every single one of us is in need of someone who comes and can come and forgive us no matter our past and make possible a future that is different and new. It doesn't matter where your past has been. I'm not concerned with your yesterday Really what I'm concerned with and what I hope this morning can do for us as we look forward is that God can recast our vision and our view of sex and that he can rebuild and retrain our approach to sex so that tomorrow can be a new day for us. That's where I want to head. That's where I want to take us this morning. And so as we jump in, Song of Solomon chapter four, what I want to do is give you guys basically three principles of great sex, right? All right, sounds a little bit like the cheesy lead-in line to a trashy magazine at a grocery store check-in, right? Um, but I assure you, it's going to look a little bit differently, all right? Hopefully the contents of our story look a little bit different than the contents of Men's Health or Cosmo or whatever it is you see at the grocery store, right? Hopefully we're going to go in a little bit of a different direction, right? But I want to show you guys three basic principles of what we're going to see for sex for this couple and ultimately, I think it makes for great godly sex, all right? And I'm going to challenge you guys that what you're going to see this morning in chapter 4 of Song of Solomon, frankly, is very different than anything that you and I see in modern media, modern entertainment, music, or even pornography. In fact, to that end, I want to kind of give you guys a sense of where our culture has moved us, all right? I don't know if any of you guys are fans of Maroon 5, all right? They have a song out, and I'll tell you guys, I was listening to their album, their newest album for the last month, just jamming out, loving it, and then actually getting to slow down and listen to one of the lyrics of one of their most popular songs, the song Animals. I don't know if you heard it, all right? But here is where our culture is on the topic of sex. Here you go. Here's a little 40 seconds of it. Oh, baby, I'm
Now, uh, I'm sure some of our other church staff is going to begin to wonder in here going, what's going on in college this morning, right? Uh, I uh, thought about certain other songs that are out there on sex right now, Bang Bang, Booty, all right, Anaconda, all right, I can't even give it 10 seconds of those songs, all right, because they're not even appropriate for a Sunday morning, all right? But our culture is singing and it is talking about sex, all right? And my question is, what is it saying about sex? How is it depicting sex, all right? For the, for, the, for the first few times I listened to the song Animals, I had no idea what it was singing about. Then I slowed down and I was like, oh my, right? It's saying something about sex, right? Something that is frankly nothing more than hunting someone down like prey. I smell your scent miles away, right? You can't deny the beast inside. Frankly, it's depicting sex in a way, frankly, that I think has really demeaned sex to make sex far less than it was intended to be. What I again want to do for you guys this morning is exalt sex back up to a higher stratosphere and show you ultimately what God did intend this to be so that you wouldn't settle for what our culture is peddling to you as if this is all it needs to be, some physical expression or some physical pleasure. It's so much more than that. The first thing I want you guys to see as we look at these principles is this, that sex, the song of intimacy, that sex is sensational, all right? Uh, Webster says that the word sensational means causing very great excitement or interest relating to the sensation of senses. Hello. This is what sex is. All right. It is sensational. All right. God was having a very good day when he created and came up with sex. All right. He's the designer of sex. All right. He designed something for you and I to experience that is absolutely exciting and interesting. It is fantastic. And what's really interesting is the last time we saw this couple, just a chapter earlier, when we looked at their movement from dating to engagement two weeks ago, what we saw is that this couple had a raging passion to connect sexually, right? At one point in the uh, passage in chapter three, if you guys were with us two weeks ago, we saw the woman in the midst of conflict that she and her boyfriend were having. uh, We saw in the midst of that conflict as they resolved it and as they stuck with one another, that she says to him, I'd like you to be a stag on the mountains of Bether, all right? And the mountains of Bether are not some geographical location. She's saying, I want you to be on my breast all day and all night, all right? That's what she says in the midst of engagement. Hello, people, all right? But what ends up happening, the very refrain, the end of chapter three is the same refrain we saw in chapter two in which the text says, do not awaken love until it pleases, all right? Uh, hopefully this is maybe not too soon for you. I hope you've gotten past it. But I said to you guys two weeks ago that really, as this couple moved through engagement, that level of desire unfulfilled felt like watching three hours of the Alabama A&M game, all right? In which there was this great desire completely unfulfilled and no one was scoring, right? That was engagement, Okay. The picture that we get of them here in chapter four is very different, all right? No longer do we get the refrain, do not awaken love, but notice what the text says to us in verse 16. The woman is gonna speak to the man, chapter four, verse 16, and notice what she says. No longer is it do not awaken, but she says in verse 16, awake, O north wind, and come. Wind of the south, make my garden breathe out fragrance, let its spices be wafted abroad. May my beloved come into his garden and eat its choice fruits. Hello, all right? She's invited him to come in, all right? Here's the deal. Uh, you get do not awaken chapter two, do not awaken chapter three. And then in here in chapter four, you get awaken all over the place, right? You're going to get restraint and discipline and, and uh, patience in chapters two and three. And then in chapter four, you're going to get a team who's in a sense like a football team scoring at will all day, all night. Would have been nice to say that about yesterday, but more about maybe a versus SMU weeks two and three, right? Of the game in which a is just scoring constantly. That's what's going to happen to this couple in chapter four. We're going to get an incredible move, but it's occurred within the context of marriage. 
chapter three, the end of chapter three was their wedding ceremony. And so what ends up happening in this story, the flow of the actual narrative is you have their wedding ceremony, the end of chapter three, you have them stepping into a private bridal chamber here in chapter four, which they're going to consummate their marriage. And then they're going to emerge in chapter five to the wedding reception because everyone's been waiting for them to emerge having consummated their marriage. When I think of that picture, I think of the word awkward, right? Uh, we don't do that in our culture, right? We have the wedding, then we have the reception, and then the, the husband and bride, or the gr- bride and groom, and then retreat off to their own privacy, hoping to never be seen again for quite a while, right? Uh, but we don't do that, all right? I remember even when Marcy and I got married, I remember we uh, got married in Midland, Texas, not a huge town. Oil is booming. Things are good there right now. But when we were there, when we got married, uh, there was basically one really nice hotel, it was the same hotel that all of our wedding guests were staying in. And I remember telling Marcy, I don't want to see our wedding guests, right? So we stayed somewhere completely different in a whole other town, all right? Just to avoid everybody, all right? And then we show up at the airport. We see a few people in our bridal party. And I'm just like, just avoid all eye contact, all right? I just don't want any conversation with them, all right? But what's happening here in chapter four and five is very different culturally, all right? You have the wedding. You have them retreating into a bridal chamber to consummate their marriage and have sex. And then you have them emerging out of here in chapter five, all right? In fact, notice the guy's response chapter 5, verse 1. Notice as he emerges to the reception, notice what he says in chapter 5, verse 1. I have come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I have gathered my myrrh along with my balsam. Just picture him lighting a cigarette right now, all right? He's just good, all right? Uh, I have eaten my honeycomb and my honey. I have drunk my wine and my milk. Eat, friends, drink. I mean, he's just throwing an elaborate party, all right? Life is good, all right? It's as good as it gets. This dude is happy and he's married and he's just laid back at this point in time, all right? So much of what they've been waiting for, looking towards, brings to fulfillment here in chapter four on their wedding night. Sex is absolutely exciting. But the thing I think that we often don't realize as we're going to see it as it unfolds here in chapter four is that sex is not just exciting, but it's an excitement to the full array of senses that you have. The sex is exciting to the full array of senses that you have. By and large, our culture says that sex is merely a physical pleasure. That it's like if you're hungry, go get a meal. If you're horny, get some sex, right? It doesn't, it's not that simplistic. It's not that demeaned, all right? The sex is something way broader. For us guys, we especially don't get this, all right? Uh, As we think about sex, we just think about some physical expression, some physical pleasure, but we men kind of work differently, all right? Some of you ladies need to realize this, that for us guys, the way that we work is this, uh, that in terms of sex, we're ready almost all the time. It doesn't matter the situation, it doesn't matter the place, it doesn't matter the time. Conditions are always right, all right? And for us as men, all right, here's the way that our minds work, all right? And ladies, you need to understand this, all right? Our whole lives, we compartmentalize, okay? So we have a box for work, we have a box for school, we have a box for our relationships, we have a box for sex, all right? And what ends up happening in the midst of whatever experience or world we're in, we're in that box, all right? And that box doesn't touch or relate to any other box in our life, all right? They're all separate boxes, all right? And we don't connect them at all. You ladies, though, are a little bit different, right? Uh, Your minds, and I heard a comedian say this, your minds are a little bit more like a ball of wire, all right? And everything relates to everything, all right? And, and so when it comes to sex, for ladies, it's not just this physical kind of thing, all right? Uh, for guys, we can kind of flip a switch and it's go time, all right? But for the ladies, it doesn't work that way. And you're going to see Solomon realize that, and he's going to proceed in chapter four in a way that looks nothing like what you see on TV shows, movies, pornography, or anything you hear in music. Solomon is going to recognize that the way that women work is that everything is related to everything. And so sex is just part of a elaborate interrelationship of situations and and things that she feels. The sex is not just physical, but it is emotional and it is spiritual. It relates to the entirety of her being. And so it does for us guys, though we don't recognize it. 
And what you're going to see in this interaction is that Solomon is going to treat her and pursue her in the bedroom, just like he pursued her in the entirety of their dating relationship. In fact, it started off with a a large sense of protection. And so in chapter two, verse three, she said that she sat down and rested in his shade, that even in dating, she felt safe in his presence. Uh, in the wedding ceremony in chapter three, that she's, uh, the text will tell us that 60 valiant men and soldiers, mighty men of war, were part of that wedding ceremony, that she felt as safe as she could ever feel. And it wasn't just a sense of protection, but all the way through dating, I told you guys way back a month ago that dating does not start, guys, with our eyes, but it starts with our ears, our ability to hear and know someone. And then it deepens, again, not with our eyes, but with our ability to talk and converse to actually get to know and ask good questions. And so a relationship deepens. And what you're going to see in chapter four is this couple retreats into the bridal chambers. You're going to see them talk, all right? You're going to see him specifically, Solomon specifically, talk. And he's not going to lay a hand on her until verse 11, 10 verses into a bridal chamber, and he's not even touched her. I want you guys to see what he does because this is so different than what we've been trained to view sex as. Uh, in many ways, if you're going to think about this, I'm going to give you guys a series of principles this morning, but I heard this said before that in many ways, men use uh, romance to get sex, all right? Women use sex to get romance, all right? That we are wired very differently to interrelate and complement one another. And that interrelationship allows sex to become something even more significant as God intended it than anything that we see. In many ways, men use romance to get sex. Women use sex to get romance. That we're wired in a way that complements that is different than one another. And so what's going to end up happening is I want you guys to notice the way that he speaks to her. Verse 1, chapter 4. Solomon says to his bride, how beautiful you are, my darling. How beautiful you are. This is the third round in which he's been speaking of her beauty. And each round that he speaks of her beauty, he goes even deeper in that explanation. Because his knowledge of her has been increasing, it's been growing, and so he speaks out of that growing knowledge into a detail that he's not yet spoken before because he's falling more and more in love with her, and so he speaks out of that love. And he says, your eyes are like doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats. (laughs) I wouldn't always use the exact lines, all right? Um, But he's going to describe things in a pastoral context or uh, in terms of a farming context that fit for them, all right? So it would have made reference for her, maybe not for us, all right? But he's going to move in a sense uh, from her head all the way down. He's going to continue to move south in his description, but notice how detailed he is. Verse two, your teeth are like a flock of newly shorn hues, which have come up from their washing, all of which bear twins, and not one of them has lost her young. Point being, you have all of your teeth, they're straight and they're nice and they're pretty. It's in the Hebrew, all right? Uh, verse three, he says, your lips are like a scarlet thread and your mouth is lovely and your temples are like a slice of pomegranate behind your veil. Verse four, your neck is like the Tower of David built with rows of stones on which are hung a thousand shields and all the round shields of the mighty man. First four verses, he's just speaking of her countenance, of her appearance, And he's just speaking in with incredible vivid detail of how much he appreciates her and how beautiful he thinks she is. He continues to go south in verse five when he says, your two breasts are like the fawns, the twins of a gazelle, which feed among their lilies. I'll come back and talk a little bit more about that in a minute. Verse six, until the cool of the day when the shadows flee away and I will go away to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. You are altogether beautiful, my darling, and there's no blemish in you. He creates a context in which she feels absolutely affirmed, absolutely protected, absolutely cared for. Does her body have blemish? 
Yes. Right? Her body is not perfect. None of our bodies are perfect. But as he speaks to her and as he encourages her, he's creating a context in which what he sees is that which is perfect about her. And she feels absolutely safe, absolutely protected and cherished by his words, right? As he's speaking. And he creates this context. And the second thing I want you guys to see is not just that he's speaking and affirming uh, to her emotional aspect and toward her mind, also toward her spirit. He's speaking to the full array of who she is because sex is a complicated thing. It's not just a physical drive and you just attack each other and it's on, right? He's starting by affirming her, right? He's cherishing her. He's creating a context for her in which she's going to want to move toward him sexually speaking. It's also interesting to me because as you kind of get into this, you're going to see that it's not just that sex is sensational applying to all the senses, but also that sex is slow. Sex is slow. Uh, I remember when we first got married, I remember being at a wedding shower and I remember someone giving a couple a cookbook called Quickies for Couples. (laughs) And I was like, it's really awkward to me. All right. Uh, Really awkward. It's like a couple, young couple, like eating noodles, which again, you don't do on a date and it's never attractive. Right. And they're like, arms are intertwined. All right. And I remember thinking, this is just so wrong on so many levels. Right. Uh, I mean, and and, uh, for, for this main reason too, you may be able to cook a meal in 10 minutes. Right. But sex is not a 10 minute deal. Right. Sex never just goes wham, bam. It's meant to be a slow art. All right. And he's going to do that here with her. In fact, it's been said, here's another principle for you guys if you want to write this down. Uh, It's been said that men are like microwaves, that women are like crockpots, all right? Uh, Men can go like that, all right? And girls take a little bit of warming up, all right? And so because, again, the way that they're wired, the way that it works for them, and so for us guys and for you ladies, realizing how either one of us are wired is incredibly helpful, all right? So for you gentlemen, I remember when we got married, I remember the pastor who was officiating our wedding said uh, that sex starts in the kitchen. (laughs) I was like... I don't really get that, all right? I was like, I don't really know what's going on in the kitchen, but like, I, I, just, I have no reference for what that even means, all right? Um, I don't know, like, I, never mind. I'm not going to elaborate, all right? But I was just thinking, you know, like, I don't know what that means. And then and getting married, I realized that what that means is that really, that sex doesn't just start the moment that the guy goes, hey, let's do this, all right? But sex starts throughout the entirety of the day as the man is serving his wife, as the man is creating context where the wife feels cherished and feels important and feels significant. That it doesn't just start at night. It starts, frankly, in the very morning of that very day, right? That it is a slow burn. It is a slow buildup. Sex is a slow thing. And so here is this guy stepping into the bridal chamber with his wife for the first time, a moment he's been looking forward to for a long time. And notice how slow he is. He's been speaking to her for the first seven verses, and he's not going to lay a hand on her until verse 11 when he finally touches her. He's slow. He's slow. Uh, I remember uh, when I was in college, Tommy Nelson, uh, who was one of my favorite speakers, came through college here at a and did a series on the Song of Solomon. And I remember him saying, speaking to the guys in the room, he said, for many guys on their wedding night, they step into that room and step into that night, and they are like a bull in a china shop, right? I mean, they're just raging and excited, and they're so excited, and they go so fast that really, for many women, they just get scarred and scared, right? And what Tommy was trying to say to the guys is, slow down, Right? That as you step into that setting, as you step into that context, slow down. Sex is, again, nothing like what you and I have seen on TV or heard in music. It's nothing like that at all. It's not intended to be like that at all. It's slow. And that's why he's going to slowly walk her through. And notice what happens in verse, uh, verse 9. He says, You have made my heart beat faster, my sister, my bride. You have made my heart beat faster with a single glance of your eyes, with a single strand of your necklace. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine. 
and the fragrance of your oils and all kinds of spices. Again, first 10 verses, he's just speaking to her. Verse five, he describes her breasts like two fawns, two twins of a gazelle. Why does he do that? It's kind of a weird reference, right? What's he trying to say? I think part of what he's trying to say is that uh, if you see a gazelle or if you see a deer out in the open, how do you approach that deer? Slowly, gently. You don't just run at it and startle it, right? You don't just freak it out, right? And so what he's saying is slow down. Approach cautiously, approach gently with sensitivity and with slowness. And then notice he's finally going to touch her in verse 11 for the first time. And notice what the text says. It says that your lips, my bride, drip honey and honey and milk are under your tongue. Where is the honey and the milk? Under the tongue, all right? So again, I remember Tommy Nelson teaching this and here's what Tommy said. Uh, the French did not invent the French kiss, right? Uh, this is something the Hebrews knew way, about, way before uh, the French did as well. This is a French kiss moment, all right? Let me take a quick aside to say this. As we walk through chapter four, this moment in their bridal chamber, all right? Uh, this is the first time the text tells us that they touch at all. It seems like the first 10 verses that there's just speech, right? It seems like he's just talking to her. So here's my question. Is this really the first time they've touched at all in the passage? Maybe. Or maybe this is the first touch of consequence, right? This is the first touch that actually begins to really rev in engines, physically speaking, okay? And so here's what I mean is, uh, in the text, have they held hands potentially? Sure. In the room, are they holding hands? Are they caressing one another in some kind of way? Sure. But it's interesting to me that the text, the first time they record them touching at all is verse 11 as they're French kissing. And so here's what I'd say to you guys who are dating and engaged, all right? I'm not gonna give you guys some hard and fast rule about making out, but I will say this to you guys. I think it's interesting that this is the first time they record touch because this is the first touch of significance that revs an engine physically speaking. Every time Marcy and I have ever talked to a couple who is struggling in their purity as they're dating, and they're struggling with where their boundaries are and whether they're keeping their boundaries in place and they're experiencing incredible and consistent shame and regret, here's what we consistently find happening. They've shut a door, they're by themselves, and they're making out consistently, all right? Now, my encouragement and my, my challenge to you guys is to be wise, to be cautious. I'm not gonna give you guys a hard and fast rule, but I will say this, that activity is designed physically speaking, to rev your engine to move in one direction and toward one thing and one thing only. So if you're consistently finding yourselves behind closed doors, making out in this fashion, know that that is designed to be a tripwire system moving you down a road toward one thing and one thing only. So be careful and be wise, all right? Here's the next thing I want you guys to see as we kind of walk through this is this. Uh, then in many ways, as he goes and he says in verse 12, he's going to speak, keep moving south, all right, from the lips. And he says in verse 12, a garden locked is my sister, my bride, a rock garden locked, a spring sealed up. He's moved south, all right, uh, and he's describing an area that makes it clear that she's a virgin at this point in time, all right? So they have arrived at this place as virgins, which is fantastic, all right? Again, some of us may arrive at our wedding nights not in this place, and you know what? That's okay. Uh, in the sense that Christ has forgiven us of that, that what God ultimately intended for us is that we would arrive into our wedding night as absolutely as virgins. And then in that place, there would be no regret. There'd be no hesitation, no reservation and complete sense of God's design as he intended it. But for some of us who have been in that place, again, let me just say that Christ forgives us, all right? And not only does he forgive us, but he makes possible a new kind of pursuit and approach to sex as we move forward. 
Yesterday does not have to determine tomorrow for you. Your past sexual mistakes do not have to determine your future. Today can be a new day, which is why I want to exalt sex for you guys, let you guys see how it was intended to be. Because notice his description of what God ultimately intended this to be. It's a description of incredible life and frankly, what is a paradise. Notice what he says, verse 13. And I don't think there's actual physical reference for this. If there is, I don't know what's going on. All right, but here's what he says in verse 13. He says, your shoots are an orchid of pomegranates. With choice fruits, henna and nard plants, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with all the trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes, along with all the finest spices. You are a garden spring, a well of fresh water, and streams flowing from Lebanon. (laughs) As he's in this moment, as he's describing her, what he's saying to her is that you, for me, are a paradise. You are paradise. He's describing in many ways something similar to the Garden of Eden. And so what he's saying is that in marriage, in this union moment, it's taking him all the way back to what he imagined that God had in the Garden of Eden. For this guy, it doesn't get as good as this as anything else in life, right? That in this union of a husband and a wife, in that moment as their union as one flesh, it's a picture of God's reconciliation to humanity and a picture of God's reconciliation of his church and those that have trusted in him for the forgiveness of sins. That it's a wonderful picture. One that was meant to bring life. And for those of us, whether it's our view of sex or our approach to sex, in those places that we're finding regret, that we're finding shame, that we're having to hide something, or that we're finding death and guilt, it's because we're experiencing this thing not as God intended it. This is what it's supposed to be like. In the right context, in the right place, it's meant to be everything that life was intended to be. He's describing paradise. And yet for so many of us, I think what we often experience is something so different right now. You know, I was thinking to you guys, as many of y'all who are singles, maybe dating, maybe just got engaged, uh, maybe close, moving toward marriage, but by and large in a room like us, almost everyone in here is uh, not yet married, right? And so talking in great detail about what sex is meant to be Uh, often for me as a single walking through college felt like someone uh, taking a group of hungry people, all right, walking them into a cafeteria where there's this amazing spread and buffet, right? And talking in elaborate detail about all that's offered in this buffet, but then at the end of the description, then whisking them back out of the room because they're not ready to eat, right? That's often what it felt like as I was a single listening to messages on marriage and sex, right? I felt like I was being shown this amazing buffet that I was hungry for and then being whisked out because I wasn't really ready to eat that. And it just felt mean, right? It just made me all the more famished and hungry for a meal, right? And so here's what I want to do. Here's what I want to highlight for you guys is why does the preview of what sex is meant to be actually really provide perspective in your present circumstances? I think for many of us, as you guys have heard messages on sex and marriage, what you hear is wait, 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 wait. What you hear is all about restraint and all about discipline, but there's no connection to those commands with what's coming in the future. And what I want you guys to see by the fact that sex is not just slow, but I'm going to show you guys in a minute that it's also service. The fact that sex is both slow and that it's service is that what I want you guys to see is that your present circumstances are not just a, hey, suck it up until you get married moment, okay? But they are actually training you and shaping you to be and have great sex in the future. Here's what I mean. The discipline, the restraint, the willingness to wait right now, to not pursue your own self-interest 
is actually training you and preparing you for what sex is going to be when you get married. And which is not about you primarily. And which it's slow, which you have to be patient and which it's to serve and look after someone else's interest. And so your singleness right now is actually a stage in life in which you are being shaped and trained to be able to have great sex in marriage. There's a connection between your life stage experience right now and what sex is going to be when you get married. There is relevance and connection now to the future, which is why I'm wanting you to see what sex is like. It's not just that you're to be whisked back out and go, this is for you in the future and just suck it up, but to realize that actually in your present circumstance, you're being shaped and trained in a way to help you have great sex in the future. Let me flip it around for you. What is our culture submitted to you guys as a substitute to waiting to marriage to have sex? Premarital sex, extramarital sex, uh, pornography, masturbation, right? Those are the kind of the big four, right? And they are all substitutes, lesser substitutes for what God has created sex within the confines and the context of marriage. And why are they such demeaning and lesser substitutes? It's not just that they're outside the bounds of what God has for you, okay? But even more, they are currently training you to believe and see and approach sex as something that is for you, for what you want, when you want it, and how you want it. And nothing could be farther from the truth of what sex is like in marriage. That makes sense? That as you step into pornography, you're going to see something and you're going to have expectations raised that aren't even realistic because sex doesn't even go that way, all right? As you step into masturbation, you begin to treat yourself and train yourself that sex is about what you want, when you want it, and however you want it. As you step into premarital sex, thinking that you have to wait, you're actually robbing yourself from training for what could be great sex as you get married. There's connection. <laughs> there's perspective. There's a, there's a relationship between that stage now that you're in as it's training you and shaping you for what's coming in the future. All right? Because ultimately what sex is, as you see in the context of marriage, is that it's not just about self-gratification, but it's about service. In fact, as you go walk through this text, he describes his garden. Uh, and then finally in verse 16, finally she speaks and she invites him in. All right. He waits on her. He pursues her. He works hard to create a moment that's going to be fulfilling for both. What pornography, masturbation, and those things teach you is that sex is about your fulfillment at no cost. And sometimes without, without even having any sense of a real relationship, right? But nothing could be farther from the truth of what sex really is. A union between two people in a committed monogamous relationship in which they are exchanging their full and entire lives. And sex is just a piece of that. In a way, towards something that is slow and is about service toward one another. And so finally she invites him in and he comes in. Now, one of the things I want you guys to notice, too, if you're going to have a chance to reread this passage, is that in chapter 4, as he's speaking towards her, the pronoun that's used over and over and over again in chapter 4 is you and your. 22 times, as Solomon speaks in chapter 4, it's not me, mine, and what I want, but it's about you and yours. His whole perspective is about her and about what she wants and what she needs. And finally, at the end of it, then in chapter 5, verse 1, then you see the flip of the pronouns. When in chapter 5, verse 1, notice the pronoun that he uses over and over again now. He says, I have come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I have gathered my myrrh along with my balsam. I've eaten my honeycomb and my honey. I've drunk my wine and my milk. Eat, friends, drink, and imbibe deeply, O lovers. See the complete switch in the pronouns? From you and service in chapter 4 toward now 5 when he says my. 
And in chapter five, verse one, is he now being selfish? No, what, he's, what the change of pronoun shows you is that they've been unioned and now <laughs> there's no real distinction between your and mine, right? Now there's been unity and union. And so often what we see in sex is our culture presents it as is not something that brings about unity, not something that brings about love, but something that brings about pain and regret and alienation. And sometimes a pursuit of pleasure outside of any relationship whatsoever. And what we've been given is a substitute that's so far less than what God intended. Something that is about uh, a full uh, sensational uh, sensation of the senses, something that is slow and something that is service. Frankly, where I want to end with you guys is this. I think there's a huge distinction between self-gratification and service. And that's true in every arena of our life. As we pursue money or as we pursue relationships for ourselves or whether we pursue them out of the benefit of what can we give to someone else. Sex is the same way. And so much of what our culture has submitted to us is teaching us and training us that sex is about you. What you want, when you want it, and how you want it, and frankly, at no cost and sometimes outside of any relationship whatsoever. But what I hope you see in chapter four here in Song of Solomon is that sex is something so much greater than that. That when we pursue it with the right motive, not about ourselves, but about someone else, in the right context of relationship in which we have a full exchange of lives within the midst of a committed relationship, what blossoms is life. It's paradise. It's all that God intended. It's a picture of what was originally created and a preview of what he's going to do in the future when he reconciles and recreates all of the earth and redeems humanity to himself. Let me pray for us. Lord, we come before you this morning and we open a topic like this, Lord, and uh, this chapter is more vivid than many of the things we ever see in our Bible. Um, and I thank you for that. I thank you that you've given us record of uh, what you intended sex to be. Um, frankly, a vivid sense of what sex could be. Uh, that you've not left us in the dark. Uh, that you provided us a voice in the midst of a wind of voices of our culture. And I pray that you allow us to hear your voice clearly. That you allow us to see sex as you designed it and as you intended it. And I pray that you'd allow us to pick apart the lies that our culture puts forward towards us. It says that sex can be speedy, that it can be about what we want, and that it can be superficial. What that brings is death, not life. What that brings is emptiness, not fulfillment. What that brings is guilt, not joy. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to see those lies and to trust that you have something better. And no matter how far we've gone in our past, no matter how many times we've bought those lies, hook, line, and sinker, and gone uh, to far places, done things that we never would have imagined, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to see the hope that you are a redeemer, that you are a restorer, that you are a savior who redeems our sin and calls us forward to the possibility of experiencing something new. And so, Lord, I pray that today that you would give us that sense that tomorrow can be different. Uh, that tomorrow a relationship could look different than our high school past. That tomorrow a guy could actually be one who would honor us and protect us and keep us pure. And that a girl could actually call us to walk with you well and not call us to compromise. Father, for those of us who are in relationships right now that are moving in places beyond what we want, Lord, I pray that you would give us the courage to sit down with the person that we're dating and to talk openly and honestly. And And to challenge one another to towards something that's different than what we're finding. Trusting that what you have is better and that what you're calling us to wait for is better. Lord, help us to believe that it is. And Lord, might you, by your spirit, give us the ability to walk and to trust you toward those ends, Lord. 
Lord, we love you. We thank you. We ask for these things through your son and by your spirit. Amen. All right. The rest of our morning for you guys is kind of table time, uh, talking through some of this stuff. So uh, it's going to be interesting. All right. So you guys have fun.